Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from a sunny place in Utah. But cold. It is sunny. It's cold. Oh, cold. Uh, Steve Edwards. Hello from a sunny and cold place in Oregon. Uh, Dan Shapir. Hi from a warmish and sunny Tel Aviv. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, we're going to be talking about hydration. So, you know, take take your HTML, just add water, right? Mm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because that's what HTML always needed. Water. Lots and lots that's of right. water. Hydration. All right, now before it's you ruin your computer. HTML needs. Yeah. <laughs> it's got electrolytes. So Dan, you're you're the one that proposed this topic and have been uh, looking into it. Do you want to just kind of give us a rundown about hydration? Because I think we all have in our heads kind of a mental picture of it. You know, the JavaScript loads yeah. and it does magic and stuff works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more or less. I mean, that's what JavaScript is magic. Um, yeah, uh, it's it's this is an, an interesting topic and one that's. Uh, near and dear to my heart because of the performance implications that it has. And as you guys all know, I'm all about web performance. Uh, this is actually a topic of a, uh, a talk that I'm proposing to various conferences. So it's something that I've researched both as part of my day job and also for the purpose of a conference talk. Uh, and it's also something that's really kind of in the headlines because all of a sudden, we've got a lot of frameworks coming out, like they're coming out of the woodwork, literally. And it seems that one of the main motivations for all of these frameworks coming into existence and the differences between them have to do with this whole thing, this whole concept of hydration. So I think it makes sense to kind of start by talking about what hydration actually is and why it even exists. And by the way, this is not the first time we're covering this topic. Uh, we've discussed it in the past with uh, Mishko Havery when he came over to talk about Quick. We also touched on it when we spoke with Fred about Astro. And also I talked about it in the past, you know, like a couple of years ago in an episode on SSR. So it, it does tend to come up, which again is just an indication of how important and and central this uh, um uh, issue is. But again, from speaking with a lot of developers, I think that many of them don't fully understand what this is, despite all of this coverage. So what is hydration? Um, let's. Uh, hydration is something that came into being because of all the uh, JavaScript frameworks that we're using that were created to uh, implement single-page applications or SPAs. Before we had these, hydration wasn't a thing. So in the world of, let's say, PHP or ASP.NET or JSP or whatever, and, you know, jQuery on the front end, if that, we did this concept of, of hydration did not exist at all. Uh, but then, you know, along came Angular and all the rest. And we suddenly switched over to using these JavaScript frameworks to render our front-ends and do it as a single-page application. And initially, it was mostly done with client-side rendering. 
which means that the HTML that you got from the server was effectively an empty page. It was a blank, uh, an empty body that all it did was uh, initiate the download of some JavaScript files. When these JavaScript files arrived at the client, they would uh, perform various uh, uh, AJAX requests in order to get the relevant data. And then they would construct the uh, HTML totally on the client side. As I said, it's what, what's called CSR or client-side rendering. And it, it kind of worked, but it had several issues. Um, one issue is that it wasn't always great for SEO. Uh, initially, search engines had a really significant problem dealing with that. Then they kind of became more sophisticated. For example, uh, uh, Google uses uh, an evergreen Chromium-based uh, engine inside of it. And uh, as a result, it can actually deal quite well with these client-side rendered uh, pages. But that's not... And by the way, we spoke about this at length when we had Martin Split. Martin Split, yeah. Exactly. Martin Split from Google. We had him on this uh, double episode uh, where we talked at length about this. And I remember he, I specifically asked him about this because it was of interest. Yeah, exactly. Because it's something that a lot of uh, JavaScript developers or web developers uh, have misconceptions about, that they think that search engines really need, can't really handle client-side uh, rendering. Well, at least Google can. Maybe some of the other search engines can't. But, you know, Google is usually the most important one, at least for now, until... <laughs> chat GPT maybe replaces it or something like that. But for now, it's still the top dog. Um, but it's still, as, as Martin explained to us, it can still be beneficial uh, if you had some content and links in the HTML itself. So because, for example, it enables the search engine to find stuff faster. It doesn't need to run the, the JavaScript on the client side just so that it could know about the other pages in your website, for example. And again, some other search engines have problems dealing with it. So that's uh, one problem. But the bigger problem is performance. Because basically, if, you're, if you have content in the HTML, the content is rendered upfront. You, you, know, you have an image tag in the HTML, as soon as that portion of the HTML arrives, it doesn't even need to wait for the entire page. It immediately can start downloading the image and then display that image as soon as that image finishes downloading. On the other hand, if you use client-side rendering, you need to download the entire HTML, download the JavaScript, parse the JavaScript, run the JavaScript, do the AJAX, parse the data, and, only the, and then build the DOM uh, structure for the HTML, and only then would the image even start to download. So obviously, the initial loading time of client-side rendered applications is it was much, much worse than if you delivered content in the HTML upfront. Now, this may not matter in some cases. I guess, for example, if you're building some sort of, of dashboard for, uh, or for, let's say, you're using Grafana, for example, then you, mm -hmm. you, care, you care less about that sort of thing. But for most websites, you definitely care about that. If you're building, let's say, an online store, 
you want your products to appear as quickly as possible. You don't want to wait for all this thing to, to take place before you can even see the product. And moreover, if your JavaScript breaks or fails for some reason, then with client-side rendering, you literally see nothing. You're stuck with that blank, empty page, which is obviously not a great user experience. So I would, I would offer a litmus test for this, which is people click to get to that resource from other pages or from search. And it isn't a resource that people are in for hours at a time. So basically, it's not, it's not a web app. It is a web site or a web page or something that has content that is predominantly static. And the dynamic parts, like the price goes on sale or a new comment is added to the page, are not that they're not important, but they're not the bulk of the content. They are trivial by comparison in terms of the the value or the cost of getting them versus the cost of rendering them. I tend to agree, although the term static might be misconstrued because, for example, it might be a news website and your, you know, news updates every minute or, you know, but it, it's still something that you get to from search and you still want to have fast load time. So uh, it, it's, 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 but I do totally agree with your presentation. You're presenting it as more of a web page or website than a web app. Uh, in any event, um, w the first framework that kind of proposed a solution for this problem. So, you know, one pro one option would have been to just give up on, on JavaScript frameworks, but JavaScript developers didn't want to do that. So the first JavaScript framework that came up with a solution for this problem was React. And the solution that React came up with was server-side rendering, which basically means that you can run the same React code on the server side and the client side. And in fact, you run it first on the server side, where instead of constructing a DOM, it constructs effectively an HTML string and then sends that string down as the response to the initial request. So basically, you kind of get the theoretically the best of both worlds. The initial display is done on the server side and you might even cache it or do something known as static side generation, which means that you might even run that React code at build time rather than at runtime and then have that HTML ready from the get-go for all the visitors. But at the end of the day, you still have all that React code also on the client side because you have not switched back to using multi-page applications. You're still using it as a single-page application, which means that the navigation to the second page and the third page within that website happen client-side rather than server-side. So the display of the first page is done on the server side, either at runtime or at build time, but then all subsequent navigations happen on the client side, assuming everything worked properly. Uh, but that raises an interesting situation or question because, okay, I can run the React code 
which generates a VDOM. We, we discussed this at length on, in, in those episodes about how React works. Uh, and I can take that VDOM, and instead of using that VDOM to update the actual DOM, I can serialize that VDOM into an HTML string and send it over the wire. And then I've got the HTML representation of the initial view of that website or that web page. But it's like just the HTML. There's no logic uh, associated with it. There's no interactivity associated with it beside the, the interactivity that's kind of built into the HTML. So links will work. Uh, a form submit button that has the appropriate action in the HTML would work. But if there's like a menu, that menu won't work because the JavaScript that operates the menu, it's not there. So effectively what I've got is like a picture of, of the site almost rather, or the page, rather than the actual functioning page. In order to have the page actually work, I need to have all the framework and application code set up on the client side as if it was rendered on the client side rather than on the server side. So far, so good. And yeah, and that's what Quick is pur purporting to do is that they they set up the event handler. They have a global event handler that is that has some sort of data in the DOM associated with it that when you everything can be rendered, but then they they kind of simplify the state management and that they don't have to fetch the the stuff that the event is tied to and and all the state that might be related to that until the event actually bubbles up. Yes, but again, but you're kind of jumping the gun. But okay. but, but you're definitely uh, correct. Uh, we're jumping the gun because uh, when I uh, the, I'm going to talk about the various ways in which modern frameworks uh, strive to deal or overcome or circumvent uh, hydration and uh, what you described or what uh, Quick uses, which is called resumability, is a way to kind of replace hydration with something with something else, which is supposedly better. And we'll get to that a little bit later on. But the way that React dealt with it is completely not that way. What React did or does is basically say the following. Uh, um, in order to be a truly interactive React application, I need the HTML, but I also need the, the VDOM that represents that HTML and all the... Um, framework and application logic and event handlers that are associated with the, this VDOM. Now, I created all this stuff on the server, but then I basically just, you know, serialized the, the data into the HTML and threw all this data away. So I don't have all this uh, uh, application state that I need. So the way that I'm going to get it is basically by recreating it. So I'm going to rerun all the code that I ran on the server, either again, either at runtime or at build time, doesn't really matter, but I'm going to run it at runtime on the client side in order to recreate the exact same state that I had on the server. And, that's, and then when I recreated that state, I can match it up with the HTML that I have and I'm good to go. And this is called or hydration or rehydration 
because I'm I'm like taking this freeze-dried thing, this HTML, which mm-hmm. was kind of like I said, a picture of a page, and I'm giving it interactivity or functionality by filling in all these uh, uh, data structures uh, in memory that are associated w- with it from you know from within or from behind. Now, in order to be able to do that, uh, I need to have, for example, all the data that was used. So, for example, if I'm, I'm displaying some data from a database on the server side, I did a database query, I got all this data. You know, I also now need all this data on the client side in order to reproduce the exact same UI that I already have. So there are two ways really in which I can go about it. One way which is not popular, and I'm not aware of any framework doing it, is that, but it's still doable, is effectively I can make all these queries again. I can do AJAX calls from the client side, get this data again from the database. The problem with that is that I kind of have to wait for this round trip. Also, maybe the, the data in the database was slightly updated, so maybe the data that I'll get is slightly different, and then I'll get a divergence. I'll get a situation in which... Uh, I'm trying to hydrate, but with slightly different data, and, and it can, I can run into all sorts of problems. So a more popular approach is to basically take all this data that I need and embed it within the HTML, let's say, as JSON data. And indeed, if you look at, uh, let's say, pages uh, built using Next.js, I assume the same is true for Nux, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, and you do a view source, you will see this kind of data duplication, that the same data is effectively presented both in the HTML itself and, again, in some sort of uh, JSON string embedded within that HTML. And on the client side, what they do is they take the data directly out of that HTML and then use it as as an input for that same um, uh, React code to regenerate the exact same VDOM. But doing it this way, at least... I know that I'm using the exact same data and I don't need to download it again. I'm, I got I get it directly out of the HTML. The cost, of course, is that the size of my HTML is effectively kind of doubled because I have the data in that HTML uh, twice. Um, another problem, of course, is that the hydration doesn't take place until I actually download the JavaScript. And I literally need to download all the JavaScript because I'm running everything again. So let's say I use uh, Moment.js in order to do some sort of date calculations or whatever. I need to download Moment.js down to the client. Um, You know, everything that I ran on the server, I need to run on the client as well. So I effectively need to download everything, rerun everything, and that is obviously a performance problem. It's, It's potentially even more of a performance problem because most frameworks, at least the, the way that they used to work, is that they did this uh, um, con- reconstruction, this hydration process, as, as in one go, in one shot. So they basically like called a hydrate function, which ran and ran and ran, and until it finished, it, it basically blocked the main thread. Because as we all know, JavaScript runs on the main thread, and while JavaScript is running, the main thread is blocked and will not respond to user interactions. So let's think about what the user experience actually turns out to be in this sort of a scenario. Uh, The user sees the user interface really quickly. And then obviously, 
the user tries to interact with it. Now, if the connection is, is quick and the network and, and the, the, you know, the, the device is quick enough and the user maybe thinks a little bit about what they want to do because they've never been at this page before, so it takes them a while to figure out what's what and where they want to click, then hopefully by the time that they actually click on something, this whole process of hydration will have finished and everything will be great. But suppose that's not the case. Suppose either the network is kind of slow or it's a ton of JavaScript, which is all, um, uh, often the case, and the device is kind of slow because it's a mobile device, so it takes a while to run all this JavaScript, or the user is maybe familiar with, the, with this website. They, they've been here before, and so they know where they want to click, so they try to click it. And then that's a, there is a problem. Uh, and that problem is somewhere between a performance problem and a usability problem. And it's really kind of interesting to think about how it impacts performance in the way that we, you know, currently try mostly measure it, which is using Core Web Vitals. Um, because unfortunately, the fact that it can result in a really bad user experience is not always reflected in the Core Web Vitals score. But before I go into that, are there any thoughts or comments about what I've said so far? Okay, everybody seems to be on board, so that's nice. So if you remember, there are three Core Web Vitals that kind of measure performance. Uh, currently, they are Largest Contentful Paint, which measures how quickly something is drawn on the screen. Well, if you think about it, with SSR, that one's supposed to be really good because you get the visual content really quickly. You know, the fact that it, you can't really interact with it yet is not measured by LCP. LCP just measures how quickly it's shown. So if you do SSR and you do it correctly, you'll probably get pretty good LCP. You know, maybe not. Maybe all downloading all this JavaScript conflicts with downloading the, the visual resources. So you may need to kind of work on your prioritization, you know, what is more important than what. But still, LCP can be good, especially, again, if you're maybe you're caching that HTML in a CDN or something like that. Uh, CLS, which measures visual stability, is, again, wholly not impacted by this whole thing. You might have good CLS, you might have bad CLS, but that has more generally to do with how you arrange your fonts and style sheets and whatnot. It's, it doesn't really usually have to do so much with the JavaScript. Um, the one that, you, that we expect to be impacted is the third one, the, uh, which measures interactivity. And currently, that measurement is called first input delay, or FID. And it measures the time from the first interaction, just the first interaction, until the browser is able to process that interaction. So from when you, let's say, clicked on, some, on a button until when the browser is able to uh, um, execute the on-click handler for that button. That's what is measured by FID. And it needs to be shorter than 50 milliseconds. Now. That one you expect to be impacted, and often it is, but the problem with this measurement is that it's kind of broken. It's a, it's a bad metric. It's, it's not, you know, 
Google came up with, with core web vitals. They came up with two good metrics and with one metric that is unfortunately not that good, which is why they're actually looking to replace this one. Uh, we actually talked about this with the Google performance team. If you remember, they were on their, our show and they talked about how they hopefully intend to replace uh, FID with INP or interaction to next paint. Let's, let's start with, first of all, why FID doesn't necessarily measure this so well. Um, first of all, if, if in fact you do click on the button while the hydration is running, then indeed you'll probably get a poor FID. Because if, let's say, the hydration takes 300 milliseconds and a good FID is under 50 milliseconds, then obviously 300 is more than 50 and you'll get a bad score on that metric. But what happens if you actually click that button before the JavaScript even finishes downloading, before the hydration even starts executing? You just have a button that's not connected to, every, to anything. Do you know how quickly a button that does nothing reacts to a click? Really, it's really quickly. Fast. Really, really yeah. fast. Because it literally does nothing. You can click this button for, you know, as many times as you want, nothing will happen. Um, so, in fact, the site might be even slower because you've got so much JavaScript that it's taking a long time to download and the user is getting really frustrated because they're clicking stuff all over your website, nothing happens, but you're getting excellent FID uh, metrics. So that's kind of the problem with that. And that's what I'm hoping... Uh, INP will resolve uh, because INP has two main differences. First of all, it doesn't just measure the first interaction. It measures every interaction to, uh, on the page. That's the input. It kind of looks at the slowest one, but it, it basically picks the slowest one out of all the interactions. So assuming you've got a long hydration time, there's a good probability that the user will try to interact with the page during the hydration, even if it's not the first interaction. And the second is that NINP doesn't just measure the time until the browser can process the event. It actually measures the time until something visual actually happens in response to that button press or whatever. So if nothing happens, then it's, it, does, it doesn't really count as an interaction. So hopefully when, uh, when Google moves over from FID to INP, the the uh, performance metrics scores for websites that uh, use frameworks will reflect that by getting a lot worse, which is kind of sad because they're already pretty bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so yeah, I um, you know another talk that I give is one where I compare the performance uh, scores of various frameworks. And uh, I tend to show that, like the the past, the the good core web vital scores for website, the probability that you get good core web vitals if you build your website, let's say using React or Vue, is something like thirty something percent. That that's it. So, so like two third probability that your performance will be bad, and a third uh, is the probability that the performance will be good. And and once Google switches over from FID to INP it will drop substantially. So instead of, I don't know, 30%, it will be 20-something percent, maybe even less. Time will tell. But, but yeah. So obviously, hydration is a performance problem. 
even if uh, currently core vitals doesn't always reflect this, this fact. And from my perspective, it's actually worse because it's not just a performance problem, it's a usability problem. Because if you navigate into a website and the website loads immediately and it's there and you try to interact with it, you click the, the purchase button because you really like the picture of that product and nothing happens, I'm, I'm betting that you'll, you won't enjoy your experience and there's a good probability that you'll go somewhere else and take your business along with you because you'll consider it to be a broken website. Not just a slow website, but a broken website. I hope you agree with that. Okay, then. So, so given that, hydration is problematic. We kind of fixed or fudged even almost the metrics. We get good LCP, we get good CLS, we even get good FID, but the user experience is bad, verging on broken, and this is because of this whole hydration mess, because this whole concept of running all the code twice, both on the server side and then again on the client side, and blocking the main thread while you're doing it. This is a, you know, a problem. And so now what I'm basically going to do is going to run down through various different methods that are available, available in order to either circumvent this problem or alleviate it or do away with it altogether. You know, various, various different strategies used by very different you know, frameworks and developers and whatnot. So the first option that we've got is the fairly obvious one is to just avoid using a framework to begin with. If I'm not using a framework that uses hydration, if I build my website, let's say, using WordPress, because WordPress doesn't use uh, any one of these frameworks, it's just PHP on the back end and maybe jQuery on the front end, no hydration, problem, problem done. Thing is, you know, again, for better or worse, most developers these days want to use a modern JavaScript framework when building their websites. Now, you can argue whether it's a good idea or not. I think we're going to have uh, Alex Russell on, our, uh, on an upcoming episode who will argue vehemently that it's probably a better idea to just, you know, forego frameworks altogether. But I think that, unfortunately, the, the I don't know, the, the ship has sailed, the, the train has left the station, call it what <laughs> yeah. you will. Uh, you know, that's what's being taught at boot camps. You know, that's how people build websites these days, you know, un unfortunately, perhaps, but that's just the way it is. But well, I'd be really the interested. The barn. The cow has <laughs> left the barn, too. That's an important one. Yeah. I, I'd be really interested to see what the alternative is, because I think that it's true. If you don't use a framework, you will build your own. It, it, I guess it really depends also on your website. Um. And we'll get to it, but some frameworks have actually intentionally uh, chosen an approach that's almost equivalent to not using a, a framework. So at least on the front end. So uh, some of them are kind of you think like, you know, we are a framework. If you want to use a framework, we are definitely a framework. But, you know, at the end of the day, they hardly have a framework on the front end. So they kind of approach or achieve similar results to just not using a front-end uh, front framework. But I'm just pointing it out that the web works perfectly well without frameworks if you don't want to use them. 
like 50, almost like 40 something percent of the web runs on, on WordPress and WordPress doesn't use a front end framework. So yeah, it's, it's definitely doable. True. Um, okay. So that, that would be option. WordPress one. is also riddled with bugs, security vulnerabilities. I, I, I don't, have you ever met a WordPress developer that said, man, you know what? Developing WordPress is just a great experience. I love it. <laughs> well, I, I can't look. I, I totally agree with what you're saying, but I do know a lot of, because of my, my uh, you know, history at Wix, there are a lot of diehard uh, WordPress developers. There are a lot of people who've built their career on WordPress, love WordPress, and still create a lot of WordPress websites and would get really annoyed when you tell them that maybe it's not the best thing in the world. But I totally agree with you, in particular about the security issues. But I don't think that these security issues are inherently related to the fact that WordPress doesn't use a framework. And if you build uh, your website, let's say, using Ruby on Rails or whatever, you won't necessarily have all these uh, security issues or, or whatnot. Well, well the other thing the, is... is the... Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, it's the, it's the lack of having a the dictionary definition framework or pattern of where things should go so that there's a directed flow of connection between this and that. And then the, just the, the willy, the willy nilly nature of it, it leads to a certain set of problems that can be avoided by not being willy nilly. I totally agree. I think that if you're building a sufficiently sophisticated uh, website and you're not using a framework, you'll end up creating your own framework which is in fact kind of happened to eBay when they created the Marco framework. Uh, you know, um, that's, that's essentially what happens. If you look at some of the bigger players, they've effectively created either their own framework or their own meta framework. For example, Wix, where I used to work, are using React, so they are using a framework, but they're not using Next.js or some other meta framework. Instead, Wix has built their own. So... Well, I don't think that's some. I think that's 100%. Every single large company has built their own framework. They're not using something else because they're building it for their use case that's different from the other companies. Yeah, but then, if then, you want a Facebook feed, maybe. React is the best way to create it. Oh, yeah, for sure. The thing about React is React was first and foremost created to address the Facebook use case. And it's being enhanced and maintained on that basis as well which is maybe not something that all React developers like to hear, but, you know, I totally agree with you on that. Anyway, so we covered this option. Let's move on to the second one. The second one is also fairly obvious. And say, you know, maybe I'm, I'm going to say hydration is a fact of life. That's the way that uh, these kind of uh, frameworks uh, have to work. So my approach would be to basically, if I can make hydration faster, if I can make my framework faster, and consequently I can make hydration faster, then the problem is still there. It's also just not as bad, potentially. Uh, and that's currently kind of the approach of uh, frameworks like uh, Svelte, uh, like Solid. Uh, the interesting thing about it is that they're not saying that they won't adopt eventually any of the other types of approaches. They're taking more of a wait and see kind of attitude. They're saying, for us, the problem is not as severe, uh, because maybe because we use a compiler as part of our build process. So we 
generate smaller, more efficient code. So the code downloads faster and executes faster. So the problem is not as severe. We look at how the other players uh, work on solving this problem. If it turns out that one of them finds a winner, then we'll uh, you know, potentially adopt that um, strategy as well. But for now, we can make do just fine by just working faster. And that's also a reasonable approach. Um, and, and like I said, that's kind of the approach taken by uh, frameworks that use compilers like uh, Svelte and Solid. Uh, one thing to notice, though, is with some of these frameworks is sometimes there's like a, um, like a tipping point that uh, uh, while your application is small enough, it kind of works. But then when your application or web application becomes sufficiently large and sophisticated, um, the cost uh, increases like linearly. So once you uh, uh, go beyond a certain point, it becomes uh, too high, um, like the same situation that you have with the more, let's say, mainstream frameworks. But, But still, especially if your website is smaller and lighter, then perhaps by using these one of these frameworks, then practically hydration won't be a problem for you. So that's that's the second approach. Um, the third approach is something that again a lot of frameworks are kind of looking to embrace. But I think that uh, Remix was the one that really brought it to the forefront, and that's uh, progressive enhancement. Basically, they're saying the, the following thing. Um, if let's say um, uh, I have a link in my page. Now, after hydration, if the user clicks that link, I want to do a client side navigation. I want to intercept that click, uh, bring the data using an, an AJAX uh, uh, call, fetch, and then do the rendering client side. But a link is a link. If that link is rendered as a proper HTML link, then it should work as a proper HTML link even before hydration takes place. So again, right. going back to the to that scenario where the user is so quick that they actually click the button that link even before the JavaScript finishes downloading, that link will work. It will result in an actual page navigation. So it won't be, it, it will work like a multi-page application instead of a single page application, but it'll still work. So the whole idea of, of a progressive enhancement is basically saying if the user tries to interact with the page before hydration, then I will fall back to and use the built-in web functionality of a submit button or a link or whatnot. And I actually heard an interesting talk given by Noam Rosenthal, who was also a guest on our show, explaining how you can use various uh, DOM uh, functionality and, and you know simple JavaScript and CSS to kind of create fallbacks for a lot of the sophisticated functionality that you would then get after hydration. But that brings up an interesting point, which is if I can achieve the appropriate behavior and functionality without hydration, without the framework, then why do I need the framework? I mean, right. if the if the page works just fine before the JavaScript 
finishes downloading, then why am I even downloading the JavaScript? Uh, and, you know, and, and to an extent, Remix kind of embraced that. Remix literally say that you can configure your, uh, when you're building a, um, a website with Remix, you can either configure it to download the JavaScript or configure it to not download the JavaScript, and it can work either way. It will work, you know, as a single-page application if you do download the JavaScript, and it will work as a multi-page application if you decide not to. But they can both work. But that kind of pulls us back to that original idea of not using a framework at all. Basically, I'm just using a framework on the back end, you know, using React on the back end instead of PHP or, or Rails. It's 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 not really being used as a front end framework in a lot of ways. If you understand what I'm trying to say, mm-hmm. but you know, it can work. Again, you're kind of potentially constrained in the sophistication of the interactions that you you achieve. Another problem is that let's say I am using progressive enhancement, but I click after the hydration process starts. And again, if the hydration process runs for half a second then again, the UI won't uh, uh, react to my interaction for that half a second. It will react once that hydration process is done, but it'll be just really janky in, in that regard. So, so just progressive enhancement, assuming you do download the actual JavaScript and perform the hydration, does not overcome that problem of hydration blocking the main thread for potentially extensive periods of time. But again, it's, a, it's an approach. Um, interestingly, uh, with React 18, um, Remix was able to kind of enhance this, uh, the behavior of a progressive enhancement by coupling it with something called uh, hydration slicing. So you might say that if you're using Remix and React Ooh, 18, then, and the idea behind hydration slicing is that instead of blocking, if let's say again, that the hydration is supposed to take uh, half a second, I can just break up that hydration process into 10 sections, 50 milliseconds each. I like that. And and it makes sense too, because whatever's above the fold, unless somebody scrolls immediately, which I think most people, you know, they kind of watch it load mm. and then and then start interacting. I yeah, like but yeah, but it really depends on how how sophisticated that process is. Whether it mm-hmm. it makes us let's say ten percent of the page actual actually uh, uh, interactive, or it just breaks it it only makes it a, be interactive at the end, but it can re, can mm-hmm. actually process DOM events in the middle. Um, right. So if it still even process it just process the DOM events, if you couple it with progressive enhancement, again, that might be good enough. Uh, you'll get the multi-page behavior, but you'll never block for more than 50 milliseconds. So, so that. And, and, but you're right. If I'm also able to slice the hydration in a way that hydrates the page, let's say, sort of in strips, going from top to bottom, then you also gain the interactivity of the parts that you're uh, already seeing. But that's potentially more difficult because it assumes that 
the React components are exactly properly ordered and, and stuff like that. And, and, it's, and, it's, and it turned out that it was actually really difficult to implement the slicing because let's say that React kind of finished building part of the VDOM and then got interrupted, okay? Mm-hmm. And let's say that that interruption did something that impacts the VDOM. So now I've got the VDOM in a sort of an inconsistent state. You understand what I'm trying to say? It kind of needs to mm-hmm. reconcile what the work that it's already done with changes that are a response to uh, whatever the user did as part of that interaction. Uh, and that reconciliation of the VDOM turned out to be fairly difficult to pull off which is one of the reasons that React 18 took something like three years until they came up with a reasonable model to handle this sort of a thing, where they created these sort of suspense boundaries where each one of them is wholly independent and then can be uh, rendered kind of independently and they don't impact each other and stuff like that. But it makes the whole model of, of the VDOM much, much more difficult. Which again, the price we pay is that React 18 took such a long mm-hmm. time to come out and that it's such a, and it turned out to be such a monster when it did. Um, right. But but again, uh, by the way, an interesting thing about that hydration slicing, so one way you can slice is basically just, you know, have like this, like a timer, uh, every try to slice every 50 milliseconds which can be kind of difficult if you're uh, deep inside some sort of, you know, recursive function and you want to bail out. It can be fairly challenging. Uh, interestingly, uh, Chromium browsers have uh, this um, uh, um, uh, API that's not currently not supported by any other uh, browser engine, which is called Is Input Pending, where you can check whether there is an, uh, um, an event in the event queue. And then you can decide to bail out only if the user actually in, tried to interact with the page, which, uh, which is interesting. But like I said, currently only implemented in Chromium-based browsers. Anyway, moving on. Uh, the next interesting approach that we see is, is a, a called Islands of Hydration, which I think is a term that was coined by Jason Miller, who created Preact. Although I've also heard that he might have taken it from someone else, but he he can certainly be uh, credited with popularizing the term, if not really inventing it. Um, and it's the technique that's used by Astro and by Fresh, which is that framework built on top of Dino with uh, Preact. And this approach it goes as following: if you consider most web applic- most web pages. Most of the web page is mostly static. You've only got certain parts of the page that actually need to be interactive. Let's say it's a blog post. The blog content itself is wholly static. The comment section might be interactive. I might have a view counter, which needs to be potentially interactive, a like button maybe. But those are like small parts within that page as a whole. So the concept of Highlands of Hydration basically says 
I'll render the whole page statically just on the server side. And instead of rehydrating or hydrating the entire page as a whole, I'll just hydrate those parts of it that need to be interactive. And sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? Yeah, I, yep. I think. No. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it sounds harder to implement, but yeah. Well, the way yeah, that that's Ast Astro for you, yeah, Astro kind of does it. Astro does it kind of generically for essentially any framework that you choose to use. Basically, you just well, say you got to have adapters for it. I mean, yeah, it's not just plug and play. True. You got to have something written for it. But yeah, basically, you you you're assuming you've got an adapter. So let's say you're using React, for which an adapter exists. You just drop uh, a React component into that Astro page. And just that React component will hydrate, or you can drop multiple React components, and each one of them will hydrate separately from each one of the others. So the uh, Astro page as a whole doesn't need hydration, but each one of those React components that is embedded with it will first render on the server by Astro, and then will be hydrated on the client side again by Astro. But just these particular components, and they could be much, much smaller than what you would need for the page as a whole. What are the problems with this approach? Uh, problem number one, it's kind of, it can be challenging to share data between these components. If these components each talk directly to the backend, then it's great. But if you want to have like a global page state that they all listen to, uh, it's kind of challenging because they all run totally independently of one another. They don't know about the existence of each other. One of the, You know, you can do all sorts of things with the window object, put data stores directly on the window, but then you get into all sorts of synchronization issues. Basically, that's one problem of how to share data between all these components without having to go back to the server, let's say. Well, you can also, I mean, you can plug and play your own state management stuff too. I mean, they say in the docs, if you want to use UX, you know, or Pinya or something like that, at least from the view side, you can. Oh, you can. I'm just saying it's it's more complicated. Uh, it's it's not something you get out of the box when you're using something like uh, Next.js. Now, again, usually you don't care in an in an in an Astro type environment because, again, if I'm going back to my blog example, uh, the uh, comments section doesn't care about the like button, and the like button doesn't care about the view of about the view count. So each one of them works effectively independently, and they don't really need to share client-side state. But again, you can if you want to, but it's on you, as it were. Another issue with islands of hydration is that they effectively require the page to be a, a multi-page application. You don't get single-page application behavior. You don't get client-side routing if you're using islands of, islands of hydration because each one of these components is a small component within the page. The page itself, the routing code, is never downloaded. You, 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 the whole idea of, of Islands of Hydration is that you never download the code required to generate a page as a whole. That just exists on the server side. So if you look at Astro or you look at Fresh, they use uh, multi-page, they, they work as multi-page applications. Now, you know, it can be totally fine. Uh, Astro, for example, explicitly positions themselves as being primarily for content-type websites. And again, and also, if we look at some of the new innovations 
coming out uh, uh, out of the Chrome team. So uh, to enable like transitions between pages in a multi-page application, maybe we'll get to a point where you don't really need single-page applications. But if you decide that, that, that you want to build your website or web app as a single-page application, then the Islands of Hydration approach isn't really appropriate for you. On the other hand, if you can build it as a multi-page application, then Astro is probably a great solution for you. We had Fred on our show. It's a great solution. It's gaining a lot of popularity and justifiably so. And by the way, it's well, getting excellent core vitals. Yeah, I think, I mean, part of this discussion, I think, is that, you know, it's the right tool for the job. You know, you can't, uh, you know, don't want to be that, uh, you know, everything's a nail and I've got a hammer. As I used to be, you know, when I first got into web development work with, you know, Drupal back in, you know, early 2000s, um, you know, Astro is great for specific use cases. There's some ways you can stretch it and there's some ways you can't. And if it doesn't work, then you find another tool. So, you know, I can think of three different tool sets I use depending on what kind of application I'm using. Yeah, but uh, to be honest, to I think I think you might be more the exception than the rule. From what I see, most web developers like to like pick their tool of choice and then try to stick with it. I mean, like, you know, there are those web developers who like to jump around between the various various uh, different frameworks and tools and whatnot and always try the latest and greatest. But I think most web developers who just want to get the job done and then go home and watch Netflix or something like that, um, they will use what they know. So if they know React and Next.js, they will use React and Next.js for everything, including situations in which, you know, Astro would have been a much better choice. Correct. You know, you're free to disagree with me, but that's what I'm saying. Yeah, the, some people will, some people won't. I've just always said the best tool, you know, use the best tool for the job. And, and, yeah. Uh, you know, that way well, you're I think you should the most learn, out of your tool. You should learn a minimum of set of tools. You should not learn every tool. The younger you are, the more, the more sense it makes to cast your net widely. But as you move towards senior positions, you want your net to be more and more narrow so that you have specific knowledge and specific tools. And if you can hone in on which tools um, address... I, I kind of said this in that We Hate Perfect Things video. There's usually, in any system, there are three constraints and you can make a trade-off where you capture any two of the constraints. So if you, inside of a system, you should be able to find three tools where each tool captures two of those sets of constraints. And the generic problem to this is the, I want it fast, cheap, and high quality. You can either have it fast and cheap, fast uh, um, fast and high quality, or high quality and cheap, but you can't have all three. Yeah, I totally agree. And again, the reality is that most people just want to get the job done. Uh, also, most uh, organizations like to, you know, prefer betting on, on the sure thing. So, you know... Um, React and, and Next are considered to be mainstream technologies. Uh, others, other frameworks might be, you know, they might be great, but they're considered more like out there and experimental. And who knows if we'll be able to find developers for them 
and whether they'll even be around in in a year or two. Uh, and yeah, so, so I guess that a lot of people just like to play it safe. Anyway, moving on to to the next one. So we covered islands of hydration. The next one is kind of similar. It's uh, sort of similar to the extent that, you know, some people kind of get confused between the two because it seems to be working in the same sort of a way, but it's actually really different in the way that it's implemented. And those are server components. Um, and they are implemented, let's say, as React server components in the context of uh, Next.js 13 together with... Uh, with uh, React 18. Interestingly, um, Shopify's Hydrogen embraced them uh, big time, and then they basically threw this all away and embraced Remix instead. And Remix is taking a, a wait-and-see approach about server components. They're basically saying that they don't feel they are ready for prime time yet, so they are, they are kind of doing without for the time being. Anyway, what are server components? The idea is really similar to the idea of the islands of hydration. Basically, you're saying, uh, but a large portion of the page is effectively static, doesn't require client-side interactivity, so why do I even need to download that JavaScript? I'll only download the JavaScript for those components that actually need to be interactive on the client side. And in this kind of a system, all the components that are only uh, generated once and then remain the same. Though those static components are implemented as server-side components, and all the client, all the components that uh, uh, have interactivity are called client-side components, even though they actually also run on the server, but are then hydrated on the client. So it's kind of a misnomer, uh, but that's the terminology that they're kind of using in order to confuse everybody. Um, so how is this different? than the islands of hydration approach? Well, for one thing, server components can be embedded inside of a page that's rendered on the client side. So they do work with single page application. Now that sounds really weird, talking about a, a client side routing happening and then using stuff that's rendered on the server side. But if you think about it, basically, you can make a, a, do like a call to the server and get that the HTML of that component in an AJAX, for example, or maybe JSON that you then transform into HTML and then just embed it in the relevant part of the page. It's kind of like doing an, an AJAX and then doing inner HTML equals whatever you get back. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. so, so you can actually get that working with single-page application. And, and you can even embed client-side components within that server-side component. So React is really sophisticated about how it manages. Does, it does a lot, a lot, lots and lots of magic and, and pulls the, you know, lots of rabbits out of the hat in order to get this whole thing working. By the way, with React 18 and Next 13, all components are server components by default. So the default behavior is to be a server component. If you want client-side interactivity, if you want you to have your own component state, because it only makes sense to have state if you're interactive, then you, you need to explicitly declare yourself as being a client-side component. You kind of put, need to put, you know how you put use strict in, in, in uh, 
You, we used to put use strict in order to signify uh, JavaScript strict mode, which is kind of now the default for ESM modules. Well, with React 18, you actually need to put use client at the top of the file to signify that what you're building is a client-side component. Kind of funny what they're doing there. So one big difference is that server-side components can be part of a single-page application, unlike islands of hydration. Another thing is that they're actually leveraging um, HTML, HTML or HTTP streaming. Um, the server components, unlike React client components, can be asynchronous. And the end result is that when the server starts executing the code, let's say you've got three components, each one making a request to some backend service. And one backend service is really fast, another kind is medium speed, and the third one is slow. You'll get the HTML response in kind of three chunks. One for the first component, then for the second component, and then for the third component. And React can actually take all these, these parts of, of that HTTP response and kind of merge them all together in order to create the unified UI for the application. And you can put in uh, loading spinners or placeholders for the parts that haven't downloaded yet. So your HTML kind of, instead of arriving as one block, is kind of streamed down to the client as, as soon as, you know, parts of it are finished and are ready to render on the client side. So you can actually have, uh, without any client-side code, so to speak, uh, this kind of, of showing data as quickly as it's ready kind of a behavior, which kind of reminds me of this, uh, uh, you know, uh, this tweet that I tweeted once. You know, we all use Twitter for hot takes and stuff like that. So I tweeted that how do you recognize a modern web application that it has lots of small spinners instead of one big one? Um, so yeah, so with React Server Components, you can think about each one of these components having their own independent spinners. So you'll get, you, you see a page full of spinners kind of coalescing into a page with content as, as soon as any piece of content becomes uh, uh, available. And you can do that as if or effectively without having to write any client-side JavaScript. So it sounds so server components sound really great, but there are of course trade-offs with them. First of all, they require um, to like a, a readjustment or uh, um, of how you code in React. Basically, all the people moving to Next 13 are kind of effectively relearning Next and React to to a great extent. It's it's a big mental shift. You're not writing the components the way that you used to. Now, you can make your move in a gradual sort of a way. You don't have, it's not an all or nothing, but, but if you want to actually take advantage of these features, you're effectively having to learn a new mental model. So that's our new set of APIs and a new way of, of building your React application or your next application. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is one that uh, Ryan Corniato from uh, the you know the creator of uh, of Solid actually uh, uh, explained to me, 
because turns out that he's actually playing with all of these approaches. He's trying each and every one of them effectively in the context of solid and trying to see which one works best. And he brought up an interesting point. He said, let's say you've got uh, a React Next application that's currently uh, 100K JavaScript download, you know, minified, gzip, and whatnot. And thanks to using server-side components, you're able to cut this in half. And it's now only 50K download. That sounds great. But it turns out that the overhead of, of server of React server components in the React framework itself is something like 70K. So... Oh, you... wow. Now, I'm just throwing them the numbers. I'm not exactly sure what uh-huh. the numbers are, but React itself has, and, and especially with Next, has become bigger and heavier in order to support React server components. So effectively, you might end up in a situation where you've transitioned to React 13, uh, to Next uh, 13, you've done all the work of, of transitioning and, u- and embracing and, and using React server components, and then you measure your actual download size, and it turns out that you've, you know, you've not saved anything. Maybe you've gotten even bigger because you're, you're downloading less of your own code, but you're downloading a lot more React and Next code. Uh, yeah. Uh, which is one of the reasons that uh, um, Ryan is still kind of on the fence uh, w- uh, with this one. He he said that he's actually playing with uh, this part partial implementation that he's got going in Solid, which is uh, uh, which is he says uh, much more like the weight, but uh, still uh, he's still on the fence with this approach, but does work. Um, the final one, because the show is getting kind of long, so I'll make this quick, mm-hmm. and pun intended, is resumability. And resumability basically says that I can, <laughs> I can have my, <laughs> I can have my cake and eat it too. I can use a modern framework, and uh, what would you know in the type of coding approach that would normally require hydration, but without using any hydration at all. And the magic that is used to achieve it is called resumability. Uh, this is the concept that's being used in Quick. Uh, it's also, per my understanding, part of the next version of uh, Marco, which whenever that comes out. Um, uh, but the basic idea is that instead of rerunning the uh, framework and application code on the client side in order to recreate the application state instead of performing this whole process of hydration, I actually don't throw away the state that I created or that I had on the server back when I created that HTML string in the first place. Instead, I kind of serialize both of them and send them down to the client. So instead of just serializing the, the data that I need in order to run all the code, I actually serial, take a sort of a snapshot of the, of the memory of the uh, uh, framework, serialize that, send it down to the client, and then basically just run from where I was as if I, you know, the code just keeps on running. Some, like 
bridging the divide, like uh, taking that uh, uh, that memory is sort of like memory dump from the server side, loading it uh, on the client side. The, the, an- the analogy that uh, Mishko, uh, uh, Mishko Avery, the creator of Quick, likes to use is, is mm-hmm. similar to a virtual machine where you suspend it and then you resume it. You don't need to reboot it in order to get to where you were. You just resume it in an instant. It's instantly on from where it where it was. Now there, they don't actually. You know the problem with the virtual machine is that those memory images take up a huge amount of space, and that's not obviously something that you can send over the wire for a web page. But they're much more sophisticated about it. Uh, also, they're sophisticated about which parts they actually run. You kind of touched on that in the beginning of the show, AJ, when you said that they put an event handler way up at the top on the window object and then identify what needs to run. And then they just uh, uh, make sure that that piece of code has the, they, they set it up with the appropriate state and have it run from, you know, where it needs to. Um, it's, it's a great approach. Um, there are prices to pay. Uh, for example, uh, they're wholly asynchronous in event handling, which can be problematic in some cases. For example, well, they're, they, yes and no. It's the important thing to understand is that it is the components are not asynchronous. They, as an async, they, none of it uses the async standard. There is no top level error handling. It is not async in the way that you would think of modern JavaScript async. It is async in the way you think of 90s JavaScript async, which is important that I did not realize the first couple times we talked about it. The consequence, for example, is that very often in event handlers, you want to uh, cancel the default action. You can't do that the standard, and you do that in JavaScript, by uh, putting on the event object, there's this uh, uh, property, like uh, what's it called, prevent default, that you just set to be false. You can't, you cannot do it this way with Quick, because by the time you process the event, the event handler is already returned back to is finished executing. So, so you kind of need to declaratively tell Quick that you want Quick to do this for you sort of a thing, if you understand what I'm trying to say. You kind of have to specify your event as being passive instead of doing, you know, prevent default true or false. Because the handling of the event is asynchronous to the capturing of the event. That's that's the thing I'm, I'm trying to kind of convey. But again, it might not matter in many cases, but the bottom line is that it does kind of work differently than um, uh, other uh, frameworks. Another interesting thing is that in many ca- in most cases, uh, um, resumable frameworks actually end up running as MPAs rather than SPAs because you never end up downloading and executing on the client side the routing code. So the routing ends up still happening on the server side in many, many cases. Um, again, that's how Ryan explained it to me. So that might be a good thing or that might be a bad thing, but it's just how they tend to behave. So don't expect resumable frameworks. So resumable frameworks kind of look 
And the developer experience is very similar to working with the more standard frameworks. So for example, Quick intentionally picked JSX just so that it looks as much as possible like React. But it turns out that in many ways, at the end of the day, when you look at how that uh, web application actually works, it actually works in a very different way. Um, but the big benefit is that you do away with uh, the cost of hydration, which means that you can get really great uh, performance and, and user experience because there's never this, uh, the, the UI is never blocked on this uh, lengthy hydration process. And if, again, if our listeners want to get more information about uh, Quick and resumability, we had two great episodes with Mishko because it was such a sophisticated concept to explain. We had to have him on to explain it twice. Um, but, uh, but yeah. Um, and, you know, there are other things that I can touch on, like edge computing is also kind of relevant to this because if you can execute your backend on the edge, then you can respond more quickly, which means that you can move more logic from the front end to the quote-unquote backend because edge isn't exactly backend. And there are other concepts, but these are really the primary ones. In any event, we've been running pretty long in this episode anyway. So I think this is more or less where I'll wrap things up. Unless there are any questions yeah, but it's or cool comments. Stuff. So would you want this as a conference talk at your conference? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I think some visuals might help. I mean, it, it's pretty involved as far as topics go, but yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know that Mishko, for Since example has some great uh, graphics that kind of highlight the, the difference between hydration and resumability that he shows when he gives talks about uh, Quick. So yeah, I would yep. likely steal some of his visuals <laughs> if I were to do a, a, a conference presentation about this. Yeah. With credit, of course. All right, well, let's, yeah. All right, well, let's let's go ahead and do our self-promos and then our picks. Um, Steve, let's start with you. What are you working on that people should know about? I'm working on prepping my dad jokes for the week. It's always the high point of every episode, right? <clears throat> anyway. Yeah. Well, um, so the other day, my, uh, my wife texted me and she says, what does IDK stand for? And I said, I don't know. She goes, dang, nobody knows. <laughs> right. So a couple deep Who's thoughts. on first kind um, of a joke? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, what? It's a kind of a who's on first type of a joke, isn't it? Uh, I guess, sort of, if you want to think about it that way. I hadn't thought about it that way. Uh, let's see, moving on. It, some deep thoughts. If anybody remembers the Saturday Night Live, you know, uh, frequent uh, feature of deep thoughts with Jack Handy. This is sort of along those lines. So, first of all, is a person who takes care of chickens called a chicken tender? Mm. Right? And important questions we have to ask. Before electricity was discovered, what were electric eels called? Hmm. Demons. And then, um, I actually, believe it or not, I went and looked that one up. <laughs> I was looking up the history of electric eels and what they are and and why they're called that. And I couldn't find anything that addressed that. So I was sort of disappointed. 
And then uh, lately, my wife has been threatening to leave me for never putting the toilet seat down, you know, a common complaint. Uh, I figured, well, that's good. I was getting tired of carrying it around anyway. Anyway, those are my picks. All right. Um, AJ, what are you working on that people should know about? Did I already mention the DuckDNS shell script before? I think you mentioned it last week. Well, I'll mention it again. (laughs) Because uh, once once it's never enough. (laughs) Yeah, once it's never enough. I haven't I haven't done any more work on it, but it got one more star. It it was trending so hard, it got twenty three stars, and then it just stopped. Uh, so I, I have to announce it on the show again, I guess. But yeah, if you're uh, I, there is there is literally in twenty twenty three there is no reason that you should ever 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 be using localhost as how you're doing development. You should never use that. There are so many problems with it in terms of you get differing security policies, you get differing uh, differences in the way APIs are exposed. It is just such a bad practice. And with things like DuckDNS and Caddy, you get HTTPS on a real domain. That means you get separate cookies, you get separate local storage. You know, you can do actual real development as if it were a real app. Now, I mean, I'm of course going to say what you should be doing is developing on something like DigitalOcean so that you actually have the full network activity loop and you're not you're not mocking out things that are going to break once they get in production at all that everything should work on the internet from the start i realize that some people are in a position where you have such poor internet connectivity that working on a vps just doesn't work because the the round trip ping time is too slow you'd be watching your characters be typed so at the very least use something like duckdns and caddy and then you you have your own local storage. You can have multiple domains. You can be able to, to check how your app interacts in an SSO, the single sign-on type of situation. You can check how it works uh, doing API requests between it. You can have a separate API domain and a separate front-end domain. You know, It opens up the whole actual real world of how web apps work to you when you're using a real domain on your local system. And since Caddy will issue both real SSL certificate or TLS, pardon my French, TLS certificates uh, through um, Let's Encrypt and Zero SSL and um, all of the others. And as well as it will also allow you to generate dummy uh, domains as well. So even if you didn't want to use DuckDNS, you wanted to be completely DNS free and just do Etsy hosts, you can screw up your Etsy host and have example.dev and foo.example.dev and bar.example.dev and example.net and just totally muddle your Etsy.host and Caddy will happily serve you fake certificates for those that uh, all you have to do is click a button and then it, it will be accepted and your browser won't even give you a red lock because um, it'll it'll put it in your system keychain for 24 hours or something like that. But anyway, the original thing was the DuckDNS. Um, also... Right now, I am streaming a series on shell scripting, and it is geared towards, well, the, the, the commentary is geared towards web developers. I'm going through two books. Uh, one is called The Linux Command Line, A Complete Introduction, Second Edition, and the other one is called Mastering Linux Shell Scripting. And so I'm just kind of going through these on stream, 
the last stream was uh, two hours long. People ask questions. I, I go through uh, the book and say, okay, well, this is important just generally. Uh, this is maybe outdated information or isn't the way that you could would script in a way that would work in Docker or other deployment environments or whatever. And so my goal is just kind of to go through the book and, and do a pass at, at um, try, trying to... to Kind of understand what the current education material is and and where it's uh, where it's on point and where it's lacking and and the differences between an interactive shell and a scripting shell because they're they're two completely different use cases, interactive versus scripting, and that is happening on the cool AJ cool AJ eighty six channels. Uh, I do plan at some point to take this experience, condense it down, and then produce videos on the beyond code channels as well but the live streams are happening on the cool aj6 channels cool how about you dan what are you working on that people should know about i don't know if people should know about this but probably they have no reason to know about it but what i'm mostly doing right now is trying to prepare my schedule for 2023 uh both for work and for conferences so for work, um, you know, most people perhaps plan their year in advance, but I happen to be touring Australia for all of December. So uh, I'm now currently working with various other teams and project leads and whatnot at Next Insurance, trying to figure out where I'm going to focus on, on uh, this this year. So that's mostly what I'm doing at work. And I'm also uh, submitting to various conferences. I've already gone, got accepted to two. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be speaking at the IJS uh, conference in London in April. And I'm going to spe- be speaking at uh, JS Nation in, uh, in Amsterdam in, uh, in June. And I've submitted to a couple of more. So hopefully I'll be speaking at other conferences as well. So if you're interested in me speaking at your conference... This is the time to reach out. Um, you know, for example, one of the talks that I might give is exactly what we covered in today's uh, session, but again with slides and and you know diagrams and whatnot that will make it potentially more understandable. Um, so that's what I'm currently mostly involved with. Cool. All right. Um... What I'm working on, um, I've kind of got a stealth mode project, but I'll go ahead and talk about what it is, and that way people can uh, check it out. Um, I've kind of had this in the works for a little while, and I'm almost ready to launch it, but effectively it's a resource directory for um, JavaScript developers. And I'm going to open it up so people can submit um, their own resources, right? So whether it's uh, videos, tutorials, podcasts, podcast episodes, blog posts, YouTube videos. Um, I'm also going to, uh, I'm hoping to be able to pull in like an index from NPM or something. Um, But what I want and what I've wanted for a while isn't just, you know, to know what's out there, but I want to give people a chance to come in and like rank rank something five stars and, you know, give give me a review and let me know, hey, this, this really helped or hey, um, you know, I ran into these problems implementing whatever or you know, just stuff like that. And just seeing if I can, uh, you know, figure out where a lot of this is coming from. Um, the other thing is, is I'm hoping that it also gives us a better read on, 
um, what's going on in the community and, you know, who's who's getting attention and stuff like that, what kinds of things people are interested in or looking for so that we can invite the people who are involved in that onto the show or, you know, put together a newsletter and, and let people know, hey, these are the things that people are talking about or, you know, these are the things we think will help you out. And uh, just just kind of provide that overall resource for people so that at the end of the day, you can go in and you can say, hey, these are all the JavaScript things. Now, um, I'm starting with JavaScript. Um, and sometimes I worry that JavaScript is a little bit overbroad as a, um, a space to work something like this in. Um, I am planning on releasing a directory for each of the other shows we have, right? So there'll be a Ruby directory. There'll be a uh, React directory. There'll be an Angular directory. There'll be a Vue directory. But right now, I'm just trying to get the the JavaScript one up and and standing, um, and that's going to be at javascriptpicks.com. So if you're a listener to the show, it should be pretty easy, right? Because gives you a chance to submit your picks. Um, but yeah, um, also trying to pull in like links to tools and stuff like that, right? So um, there there's probably going to be a category for like tools and then editors and IDEs, and then you know you can rate and review Visual Studio Code, but There'll also be a, a category for plugins or maybe VS Code plugins. And so then you can go in there and you can say, I'm using these ones and I like them because, right? Because I just, I, I get rundowns from people on the kind of stack of those they use, but I want to kind of see overall out there how that's going. Because sometimes the ones that get rated in the extensions listing in VS Code for whatever reason, they just don't work for me. And so uh, just being able to kind of go, hey, this is what's out there and then what people are using, um, allowed to leave, you know, commentary and, and reviews, kind of like an Amazon review, I guess. Um, I think that would really help. And then we can, we can give people a place where they can come for all of their JavaScript stuff. I want to learn more about this. I can find all of the podcast episodes, books, conference talks the whole nine yards about that topic so anyway um so that's kind of the thing that i've been working on lately um and then i do also have a course coming out within the next couple of weeks about um basically how to focus on and build your career make yourself so you're more hireable so that you're building a a career that's fulfilling and that helps you make the kind of money um and you know build the kind of lifestyle that you want so if it's money, if it's I want more time with my family, if it's, you know, I want to travel, right? Just help you figure that out and figure out what the steps are to get where you want to go. I want to speak at conferences, another one that I hear a lot. So anyway, um, so that's what we're doing. All right, let's do picks. I can try. So um, my first pick is going to be uh, a talk or a short video, actually, given by, uh, I forget his, his last name, uh, Theo, he calls himself 3OT3GG. Uh, he does a lot of uh, streaming and stuff. He, uh, he gave, he did a short bit. It's only like three and a half minutes. That's basically titled in a clickbaity sort of a way, Don't Learn TypeScript, where he basically says, you know, you shouldn't learn TypeScript as TypeScript. What you should do instead is learn JavaScript while using TypeScript libraries and TypeScript bindings. So 
have your development environment be type aware for you while you're just learning JavaScript. It's a great video. I enjoyed it a lot. It kind of, you know, it got me thinking about, you know, because I've been thinking for a while about what people coming into our web development, which programming language they should be learning these days. And, and having watched that short video, I have to say that I very much am in agreement with it. So I would recommend that. Uh, if we're talking about YouTube, but also recommend, uh, we mentioned him a couple of times during this show, Ryan Carniato. Uh, turns out that he has like a weekly stream where he literally streams for something like five hours, and which sounds insane. I don't know how he does it, but his streams are just so interesting. Um, when I did my research about uh, frameworks and how they deal with hydration and stuff like that, one of my uh, main resources was a video that he did called, titled JavaScript Frameworks in 2023, which is five and a half hours. Obviously, I listened to it at high speed, but it's just great content, and I highly recommend his stuff. But like I said, you know, be aware that you're in for a, a fairly lengthy uh, dissertations, as it were. So that would be my, my second pick. Um, and my uh, third pick is, oh, yeah, um, have you noticed that ChatGPT is not exactly free anymore? Uh, you've not got, got ChatGPT Pro, which is, for now at least, $42 a month. Uh, the free one still exists, but given that uh, Jet ChatGPT Pro gets uh, preferential treatment, uh, I wonder how available the free version will be. Let's put it this way. $42 a month to get bad code that doesn't run? Yeah, turns out that, you know, we'll start need to get back to writing our bad codes ourselves instead of getting the AI to write it for us. I mean, just, I don't know, maybe it's worth it. I'll have to think about it because it, it has been nice to be able to find related search terms for things I'm not familiar with. But it's it's like, I'd, I'd rather pay Brave Premium Search, I think. The problem with search is that at the end of the day, you get a page which can be great, assuming you find a good page on the topic that you're interested in, whereas ChatGPT kind of writes a short essay for you explaining the topic or whatever, which I yeah. guess a lot of people actually mm. prefer. But whether or not they'll be willing to pay $42 for it is an interesting question. Well, I, I had somebody, because I was I use ChatGPT on stream, or I have been quite a bit, because, you know, it's the... Thing people are talking about and it actually is useful it actually is useful to get me in the ballpark of where i need to be and there was something that i wasn't personally familiar with and it was late at night so i wasn't using my brain and i was thinking oh okay all right so that's how it works that makes sense and, and it was something that was so common that i thought there's no way that chat gpt could get it wrong because it was just one of those it was just one of those common things that chat GPT is usually pretty good at, not something that's new or novel or creative. And then somebody in the stream said, hey, that is completely incorrect in every possible way. <laughs> it is literally just throwing related words at you. Don't listen. And I, and I thought, oh, oops. <laughs> yeah, the problem with it. Yeah. Um, no, go for it, Chuck. I, I was just going to say, I've I've talked to a lot of marketers that 
are using it to generate at least the beginnings of some of their copywriting. I mean, they don't use it just copy and paste, but a lot of times they use it as kind of a brainstorming tool or a way of, um, you know, kind of collecting information into a semi-coherent way of putting things. And then from there, they can spin it into something that actually makes sense and will help people. So it's a shortcut for doing all the writing. Well, I can tell you that I had a team lead who shall remain anonymous, not at Next, by the way, tell me, and but maybe he was just, you know, pulling my leg, but he stated, he claimed that he needs to write performance reviews for the people on his team. Then he has, he has chat GPT do it for him. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. That, that's kind of amusing. And have, imagine having your yearly review written by AI. Yeah. Nice. It's just as relevant as having it written by a manager. <laughs> I, oh, did I say that out loud? I, I What I meant was exactly what I said. Anyway. Um, it's, 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 it's an NPC. If, if you're going to, if you're going to pay an NPC to write something for you, get the cheaper yeah, one. And another one, by the way, told me that yeah. all his internal uh, work emails are written by chat GPT. <laughs> yeah. All that's, right. that's yeah, four, four NPCs by NPCs. <laughs> yeah. It wouldn't be, be great anyway, if um, everybody uses chat GPT and it's just chat GPT generating all the emails within the organization and reading all the emails. Right, I replaced you with chat, chat GPT. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Um, are those all your picks? Because yeah, I do need okay. to keep us moving. All right. AJ, what are your picks? Oh, that's a good question. Um, uh, you know, I had something top of mind and then I and then I think I just forgot it. So um, the album that I don't remember the name of by Hot Hot Heat with the song No, Not Now. That one gets stuck in my head all the time still after 20 plus years. Oh, no, she's not a secret now. Nobody cares. Oh, no. Thank you for singing, AJ. Hopefully you don't get a copyright strike. Yeah, I would have thought that with your kids, you would have been into Baby Shark or whatever. Uh, you know, let's see. Okay, let's talk about that then. Um, Animal Crossing. I'll pick Animal Crossing because my daughter, she likes what she calls jumping Mario because there's different Marios, but it's the it's the simplistic Mario, the Mario U Deluxe, Mar Super Mario Bros U Deluxe, which is essentially all you do is jump and side scroll. And I thought that that was really good to get her started with because it helps you learn the controls of the buttons to be able to move left and right, to jump, to have some granular control so that you're not full hard right, full hard left, but that you you kind of get some control. And it's, and it's very simplistic. But she likes it a little bit too much. And I don't think there's a lot of value in it. That it doesn't have, there's, there's nothing that's particularly artistic about it. There is a little bit of music but it's it's just very very um, it, it's it's what we might call a hyper casual game, right? Um, and I'm not I'm not interested in having my children raised on hyper casual games because then they will have hyper casual minds. I want 
games that help to expand horizons, to be able to problem solve, to be able to uh, be motivated to learn to read. So if she's playing a game and she wants to stop to ask one of us to read to her what a character is saying, that is a good sign for me. Um, being able to control multiple things at a time, to have to to switch between things and kind of develop that mental model of multiple things go on in the world at once. So I want games that that have that educational quality. And we got her Animal Crossing to play with Auntie, and Animal Crossing seems to have uh, a nice blend of being a little bit more... Um, creative she's learning to to you know take things and put them together it's got kind of that um i forget what the mechanic is called but the 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 kind of apothecary mechanic where you if you have a stick and you have this and you put them together then you get a ladder you know that that kind of stuff and so i'm i'm so far i'm feeling pretty good about animal crossing and it also has that social element of she can get online and play with with auntie and so i think that that's um really good and I, and we were enjoying Yoshi's Crafted World. I think Yoshi's Crafted World is kind of a blend between the two. It's got the jumping and side scroller aspect but it also has a little bit more of a reading aspect and it's got a little bit more of a artistic style that I think is conducive to what I like because all the elements in the game are origami or paper boxes with glue and glitter. They're all things that could be inspiring for what she might want to do during her craft time and stuff like that. So there. Picked. Good cool. All right. I'm going to throw out, I'm going to be really quick, but um, I'm going to pick a board game real quick. It is Harry Potter Death Eaters Rising. It came out like three years ago. Uh, it is kind of a hard game to win. I will, I will just say um, it has a board game weight of 2.31. So a little complicated, but casual gamers can play it. Um, if you're a Harry Potter fan, it's kind of fun, but yeah, it, it takes a little bit of a learning curve to figure out how to win it. So I'm just going to let you know that, um, basically you put out cards, um, Voldemort attacks people in various locations in the game, which are also just put out by they're they're on cards and, you know, he turns three different directions and, um, you know, attacks whoever's there. And then um, you have to take out the Death Eaters that are out there. If you take out the Death... Yeah, take out 11 Death Eaters or something. And then you can attack Voldemort. And you can also, as you're rolling the dice, you roll dice. And uh, the dice have different faces on them. And if you get the right combination, then you can... Um, you can recruit some of the heroes from the game, some of the characters from the game, into your hand, into your onto your team. And then you can use them right to do the attacks when you roll the dice so it's 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 fun um i think it's easier with two players than with four players it goes two to four players but yeah it's it's fun so uh my wife got it for christmas um her sister had it before that so anyway i'm gonna pick that one and shout out to that one um i've also gotten into um I think we talked about it on Angular uh, Adventures in Angular. We just did a show about Tailwind and our experience with it. I've been playing with it quite a bit after, since then, and I'm really liking it. So I'm just going to put that out there. I'm I'm enjoying um, Tailwind. I think it's cool. It's pretty nice. 
Um, the Rails Tailwind plugin is not working for me at the moment. Um, I just, you know, jammed a file in because I bought a uh, a template, but uh, and so it doesn't have all all of the Tailwind classes in it, right? Because they just kept the ones that they needed for theirs. But as I'm expanding into using more of Tailwind, I need some of the classes they didn't include, and I'm trying to figure out how to get them in. But that said, I, I like the style of it. It it feels nice. Um, I get the complaints that there are really, really, really long lists of classes that you put in there. But anyway, it's it's been pretty approachable, um, I'm just going to say. So, uh, yeah. So those are my picks. And I guess we'll wrap up here. And until next time, folks, Max out.